Welcome to the fantastic world of Hannah and Barbera, a celebration of Bill Hannah, Joe Barbera, and the thousands of people, past and present, who have shared in their entertainment tradition. And now your host, Greg Airbar. Thank you, Chris, and welcome to our fantastic world of Hannah and Barbera. Welcoming back a wonderful guest that we're privileged to have back on the podcast, an animation writer's animation writer. He's written for so many of our favorites. And also, not just Hanna-Barbera, but Disney, Marvel, and everything. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. John Semper Jr., welcome back. Thank you very much, Greg. It's good to be here. Let's start with the thing you're doing coming up in a few months. Yeah, I'm working right now on a show that probably won't be on the air until 2025 in animation. We work on things. There's a huge amount of lead time. And then by the time they get on the air, we're probably busy working on something else. But in 2025, there will be a show on the air called Weather Hunters, produced by Al Roker for PBS. It will be on PBS. And I am currently one of the exec producers, and I'm also the head writer. And we're at the very early stages of that. We are only now looking at our first couple of animatics. So we have a long way to go on that show. Is it going to be one of those 65 episode thingies on every day? Or is it a uh, two stories a show? Um, how We're doing 22 minute stories, which is a TV half hour. And uh-huh. we are doing 40 episodes, four zero. Wow. So yeah, it's a pretty big order. And then, you know, there's always a possibility that they'll pick it up for more down the line. So I'm going to be working on this show probably for a good long time. Well, that's a great idea. The only thing I can think about that was ever about weather in cartoons. I don't know if you saw this in school, but I did. When I was in AV, I was running the projector and we were looking at those Bell Science films. Our Mr. Sun. Yeah. And the animation was like people by Chuck Jones did some and Seamus Culhane. And my favorite that I showed over and over again was the Unchained Goddess. Oh, I I don't remember that one. They're all on YouTube. And this one, I think Seamus Culhane did the animation. And it was Dr. Frank Baxter, who Mm -hmm. has a star on Hollywood Boulevard and then I think it was Richard Carlson was the, there's always a young assistant. Eddie Albert was in some of them. And, <laughs> but I just thought the animation was so wonderfully mid-century and so much fun. And they yeah. put a lot of time and money into those. Anyway, that was about 58. Yeah, really. those those things were shown in classrooms for decades, you know, after they were made. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> Halloween is upon us and may have passed, but who cares? because every day is a holiday here in the fantastic world. (laughs) So what we want to talk about specifically is the encounters with the Scooby-Doo property, the IP, as they call it. You came to it when it was already a phenomenon. Scooby-Doo was 69. It was over over a decade of Scooby-Doo-dom. Probably. I remember that Scooby-Doo had come on when I was a teenager, or late teen. And I actually, by that point, was not watching cartoons. I think I was uh, in my last years of high school or early years of college when Scooby-Doo first arrived. So I was not very well versed in Scooby-Doo, and I certainly was not what I would consider to be a fan of Scooby-Doo. But when I had the opportunity to start writing at Hanna-Barbera with my partner, Cynthia Friedloeb, Scooby was one of the uh, properties that was going strong, and that was one of the things that they needed writers for. Mm -hmm. And I had, prior to that, as I discussed with you in the last episode that we we were together, 
prior to that, I'd worked in the editorial department at Hanna-Barbera Film Editing. And I had worked on at least one season of Scooby-Doo's as a film editor. So I was pretty well versed in what the format was. I would sit with the network and we would look at rough cuts of Scooby-Doo's right after they'd come over from being animated overseas. We would look at them and, you know, I'd see what they liked and I'd see what kind of notes they gave. So I was pretty well versed by that time on what the show was and what the network wanted. The network at that time was ABC that was doing Scooby-Doo. And I knew all the ABC executives and I knew the producer of the series. And so when it came time to write Scooby-Doo, even though I hadn't been a fan from a working relationship, I already knew what all the components were that got the network excited. And when we had the opportunity to write, they got very excited about us as writers And we had our earliest successes as writers of Scooby-Doo. ABC started requesting that Cynthia and I write more Scooby-Doo's. At that time, I was not working at Hanna-Barbera anymore. I had segued over to, actually, first I was working as an editor on a TV show called Ripley's Believe It or Not. Mm -hmm. I was an editorial assistant. Absolutely. As he used to say, Ripley's Believe It or Not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. He had to have that long pause. After uh, the second season of Ripley's, two editors asked me if I wanted to go work on features with them. One of them was Alan Balsam, and he was about to go off and work on To Have or Have Not, the Mel Brooks film. Mm -hmm. And the other one was Dave Blewett, and he was about to go off and do a film called DC Cab at uh, Universal. And I chose to work with Dave because I did not want to get up every morning. I lived in the Valley, and I didn't want to get up every morning and have to travel to 20th Century Fox whereas traveling to Universal was only five minutes away from where I lived. So I ended up working Ah. with David. So while I was working at Universal as an editor, as an editorial assistant, I started writing for Hanna-Barbera. That was when uh, we had the opportunity, Cynthia and I had the opportunity to write, and she was still working at Hanna-Barbera. So my first scripts were done freelance. And then when ABC expressed a great interest in having us continue to write for the show. They were very enthusiastic about the scripts that we were doing. Then Margaret Lesh, who was in charge of Hanna-Barbera at that time, said, well, who's this John Semper guy that that ABC is all excited about? And Cynthia said, well, he used to work in editorial and, you know, he's working now at Universal. And Margaret said, we'll make him an offer and let's get him over here on staff because we were selling so many Scooby-Doo's and that was a very valuable thing to the company at that time. So I came over primarily because of Scooby-Doo. That's how I became a staff writer at Hanna-Barbera. And then, of course, once I was on staff there, I ended up working on everything that was in production at that time. You know, that brings up a question. What do you surmise was the appeal that the networks found about your stories? Well, I can't say that it required a college degree in order to write Scooby-Doo. It didn't. It was not a very complicated show to write. ABC liked certain beats. If you hit those beats, you were golden as far as they were concerned. At some point during the course of the cartoon, Scooby and Shaggy had to stop for snacks. Mm -hmm. If they would be in the middle of a chase, they would stop the chase. Didn't matter who was chasing them, they would stop Mm -hmm. the chase. If they ran by a table of food... You know, part of the success of being in this business is not so much what you, or at least back in the day, it was not so much about what you thought was funny or was entertaining. It was about what they thought was funny Mm -hmm. or was entertaining. 
And so you really kind of had to get into their heads. And that was where I had a great advantage because I had sat with all the executives and looked at rough cuts. I had an idea of what they thought was funny. You know, all the signature beats. I always tried to elevate the franchise a little bit by finding interesting new ways of doing the traditional formula. Yeah. So I always like to cite the fact that I'm a big Zorro fan. I grew up with Walt Disney Zorro as my first favorite TV show, and I still think it's a great show. And so I decided to do a Scooby as Zorro episode. I'm a big film buff. So I decided to do a Sunset Boulevard, you know, Scooby <laughs> in Sunset Boulevard kind of episode. <laughs> and I thought, well, it'd be interesting to just make a kind of a comedic statement about the fact that sometimes during the course of making a film, people go too far. They just mm -hmm. go too far with the stunts. And so it was a TV show on ABC at the time. Oh, with uh, Lee Majors. Lee Majors, oh. yeah. The Fall Guy. The Fall Guy, thank you. It came from the movie called The Stuntman. So I did a cartoon called The Fall Dog, where <laughs> a director keeps pushing his stunt people to do wilder and wilder stunts. And Scooby and Shaggy and Scrappy are posing as stuntmen in order to get close to some mystery that they're solving. And so they keep getting put in these horrible situations by this crazy director. I was always playing around with the formula. And I think I was playing around with it, but at the same time, I was sticking to it. Right. So ABC saw that we understood the formula, but that we were extending it a little bit further. And you couldn't go too crazy because they wouldn't let you go too crazy. It was really just sort of finding a way to satisfy their needs while also bringing a little something extra to the table. You know, I, I like my Scoobies. I think they're actually kind of funny. And I think they stand out a little bit from the others. So when you took it on, the format, which everybody knows, you don't even have to know Scooby-Doo to know the meddling kids and the unmasking, why it's Mr. Greenway. I, and they're scaring people away. It was in Wayne's world. It becomes the zeitgeist. Yeah. And the format itself... It goes back to The Cat and the Canary, the silent film, and then the Bob Hope remake, and Abbott and Costello meet various monsters. Mm -hmm. the, the mixture of apparently grim, serious villains with goofy hijinks. See, my favorite Scooby moments are when Shaggy and Scooby inexplicably find costumes and dress as waiters with platters and things like that, and they make the ghost or phantom stop and buy into it for a few seconds, Sure. And then the ghost goes, oh, ah, you know, and then they run away and they, and that's also classic vaudeville. So, yeah. and you had a little bit of music in some of the ones you did. 13 Ghosts had that Me and My Shadow. There's also the famous monkeys kind of romp. So when you did yours, it was right when the public and the world was ready to play with the format. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I'm very thankful for that because the ones that I had edited did not have that component. You know, I enjoyed having fun with it. It was funny because prior to the last half hour we did, I rewatched my two episodes of 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo, and I had forgotten really pretty much all of what went on. And when they went into that musical number, it caught me totally by surprise. <laughs> I know I wrote it, and I, you know, and I know that I called for it, but that's something I like. I'm a big fan of musicals. So I always found Scooby to be this wonderful creative sandbox where I could mix things that interested me or that I thought, you know, current events that were going on or movies that I liked 
I could always sort of fold that into whatever Scooby-Doo I wrote. I'm a big Sherlock Holmes fan. And one of the last Scoobies I had a hand on, it eventually became a two-parter. I had nothing to do with that, but it was uh, Sherlock Do, mm-hmm. uh, where uh, the ghost of Sherlock Holmes, and I wrote the outline for that. What happened was that right at that time, Cynthia and I got pulled on to doing development on a new show, which was a big deal. That was really kind of the really big prize at Hanna-Barbera is if you got to develop a new show. Mm-hmm. And they pulled us off of Scooby-Doo right at that moment. And I think Glenn Leopold ended up taking my outline and writing the actual script. But that started with me. So I was always trying to fold in things that really interested me. There's a lot of me in Scooby. One ironic thing is that when I did Spider-Man years later, I was the head writer on that. And I was also the showrunner. The first script that I wrote that's just all me was uh, Day of the Chameleon, Mm -hmm. where uh, Spider-Man went up against the chameleon. And I was very surprised when I was going through my Scooby history to see that one of the villains in one of the Scoobies, I think the Scooby Olympics or something, gold medal gambit was, was uh-huh. the one where we, which sort of had to do with the Olympics. I think the villain in that was a character called the chameleon. <laughs> and that caught me totally by surprise. I had totally forgotten that it was a wonderful time. The formula was so locked in that it was kind of easy to add things onto it. You know, it was yeah. a very simple formula. But I could constantly add things onto it and make it a little bit more mine. I enjoy those Scoobies, you know, given all their faults. And I don't think they're the greatest cartoons ever written, but I really did have fun. It was a great way to start my career. You could look at Scoobies as the greatest cartoon ever made, which some people do believe. But you can also call it a guilty pleasure because of the silliness and the absurdity and the repetition. You know, you're waiting for all those moments and the episodes that you worked on also were different. And I think you had explained this to me. Uh, They had changed the casting around. I don't think, were these the ones that didn't have Velma and Fred? It was just... That's correct. Daphne and she was a reporter. Right. So the format had changed. What was the reasoning? What was the discussion behind that? It was beyond my pay grade. You know, by the time I got there, that decision had already been made. My guess would be that two things. Networks were always trying to change things up and make things different. Mm -hmm. And there often was not a great deal of logic behind it. Networks were not run by people that really worried too much about cartoons, to be honest with you. And so I'm sure it was a network decision. And it probably had to do with the shortening of the episodes to 11 minutes. Mm -hmm. Somebody must have made a decision that a 22-minute episode, a TV half hour, was too long and that it might be more interesting for kids if they got two adventures in a half hour instead of just one. And once they made that decision to only do 11 minute stories, probably somebody said, well, we've got too many characters for an 11 minute story. So why don't we just pare it down to just this? And the network might also have said something like, yeah, we really want to focus this year more on Scooby and Scrappy and not so much on the kids. Mm-hmm. They were always making decisions like that. Half the time, you didn't understand why they made the choices that they did. They certainly never predicted that there would be the kind of scrutiny that there is. You know, people are always asking me, why, why weren't Velma was somebody, somebody said this morning on Facebook, was there a Velma problem? Was it because of the Velma problem? And I have no idea what the Velma problem is. It was. I can see the paperback at Barnes and Noble, the Velma problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, the kind of scientific scrutiny that goes on now behind these simple cartoons. But that's the reason that the cast was shortened. You and all of the other extremely talented people at Hanna-Barbera were getting these notes and these seemingly unfathomable things to deal with. How yeah. are you going to do that? A writer friend of mine used to compare it to beat the clock or truth the consequences. Mm -hmm. You know, okay, we're going to tie your hands and we're going to put you back to back and we're going to submerge you in a tub and then you have to push all the balloons out of the tub. Oh, and did we tell you you're going to be blindfolded and you have 60 yeah. seconds? Yeah. And so <laughs> we'd walk out of a meeting with that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we got so many notes on these simple 11 minute cartoons. First, you know, you'd write a premise, then you get a slew of notes on that. Then you'd write an outline, which was sort of a prose version of what was going to happen in the cartoon. And then you get a ton of notes on that. And then you'd go to script and you get a whole bunch of notes on script. <laughs> there was a rather annoying network executive on uh, at Fox who, when I took over Spider-Man, when assessing my abilities as a writer, and he was the executive on uh, the Spider-Man show, and he would say, uh, well, you know, John Semper, I mean, he wrote all those really uh, boring Scooby-Doo cartoons. And I thought to myself, you know better than to judge any writer based on any story that they wrote, any script that they wrote at Hanna-Barbera, because you know how many restrictions we had on us. You know how many notes we got. You were lucky if you got anything of yourself left in a cartoon, because by the time you were done, you had been through a gauntlet of really mediocre notes. And, you know, the network people were not bad people. Mm -hmm. They were very nice people. The problem for me was that they were not very well-versed in animation. Most of them had come from other fields. They had probably never really watched cartoons as kids, probably mm -hmm. never liked cartoons. They were the kind of kids that would say, I don't watch cartoons, I don't like cartoons, and you'd sort of scratch your head and wonder what alien planet they came from. I remember one executive at NBC, she didn't last very long, but she had come from education. You know, they were hiring people who had trained to become nursery school teachers and grammar school teachers. They were the last people that had any interest in cartoons. And now they're having to learn entertainment, writing, and cartoons on the fly. So these were the people who were giving you notes. These were the people you had to please. Prior to leaving uh, Boston for LA, when I was in Boston, I had been kind of a cartoon historian. I'd written about cartoons. I knew what a good cartoon was. The possibility of writing a great cartoon under those circumstances was severely limited. And what's funny is that all of the people or a lot of the people that were working in Hanna-Barbera at that time became architects of the great cartoon renaissance of the 1990s. That's right. You know, you've got Tom Ruger. Tom was, you know, story editing Scooby-Doo's. I wrote for Tom. Mm -hmm. And then years later, Tom does Animaniacs and is responsible for Pinky and the Brain. And we knew what great cartoons were. So we did the best we could. I'm now known for Spider-Man, but I remember writing Super Friends. Alan Burnett, who, of course, made a huge name and reputation for himself doing Batman and doing all the wonderful things over at Warner Brothers. When I wrote Super Friends, I was writing for Alan. Alan started out at Hanna-Barbera. So we were all there. We were all huge fans of great cartoons. We all knew what great cartoons were. We were just doing the best that we could. Well, and sometimes the best was surprisingly good, considering all of the elements involved. I mean, we don't have to kid ourselves and have rose-colored glasses and say everything was a sparkling gem that came out of there because all of these elements were involved. But it is miraculous 
how much of this stuff kind of endures either in memory or because a lot of the stuff you worked on, you can still find and it's shockingly entertaining <laughs> and you can put something that had everything going for it, mm-hmm. but totally left you cold and forgettable next to some of these cartoons, despite all of those issues and they don't hold up. So I think part of that was you all had that the baptism of fire. You all had yeah. to work within those restrictions. It gave you the muscles yeah. so that you could go on and do other things because you knew what the pitfalls were. You Once you know all those things in your head, then you know what roads to take. It sounds lofty when you're talking about biscuits and stuff like that, but it's I still like the biscuits and sure tales. You can find what you can enjoy in them and be very realistic about it. You know, mm-hmm. you're not don't, don't expect it to be Fantasia. It's not. But look at Scooby-Doo. I mean, for gosh sakes, it's still around. And part of the reason is that it is entertaining on its own level because of the format, but it's so much fun to make fun of the format. Mm-hmm. And even the recent feature film, there was as much reverence to the original as there was irreverence. It works on those two levels. You like how silly it is, and yet, you know, it's it's hard to explain the reaction, but why does Scooby-Doo, why is it such a huge, huge thing still to this yeah. day? Well, I like to think that in the DNA of anything like Scooby, anything that was done at Hanna-Barbera, there were immensely talented people working there. A lot of the directors and producers and animators had worked on great things prior to ending up at Hanna-Barbera. So you've got Iwo Takamoto designing mm-hmm. characters. You've got producers like Alex Lovey, who designed Woody Woodpecker. You've got producers like Kay Wright, who had done some really wonderful things. Ray Patterson had animated the really great classic Tom and Jerry's that Bill and Joe had produced. Um, you had people who had worked at Disney first time I ever met Floyd Norman, who's now a Disney Mm. legend, he was in a booth over in the layout department at Hanna-Barbera. And Bill and Joe, of course, had done amazing work at MGM, Academy Award-winning, Academy Award-nominated cartoons at MGM. And then a lot of us younger people who were on staff there, we would go on to do really great things later in life. So there was a huge hotbed of talent at Hanna-Barbera. You know, despite the restrictions placed on you by the networks, and again, lovely people, some of them were very wonderful people, but there's something about the nature of a network bureaucracy that back in those days, at least as far as cartoons were concerned, it was a real dampening factor. But we all knew what a good cartoon was, and we were all trying to get there within the confines that were placed on us. I mean, you look at Ewo's character designs, and they're brilliant for the limited animation for the limited amount of money that's being spent. They're brilliant. And I used to wander through the departments. Back in my day, you could walk through and watch an entire cartoon being made because they were still making one or two cartoons right in the building. And I would look at the uh, background painters. My goodness. I mean, they were doing amazing work. They were brilliant artists. One of the uh, artists, background designers and overall art directors, Dennis Venizelos ended up years later on my Spider-Man series. And, you know, the work that he was capable of doing was just amazingly brilliant. Mm-hmm. So there was just so much talent in the building. It couldn't help but seep out into the product. 
Let's talk about the 13 ghosts of Scooby-Doo. That's a really good show. <laughs> Were you involved at all in the development? That was, was a Tom Ruger show or Tom, how did that... it was, it was Tom's show. I wasn't involved in the development. For me, it was a little more difficult because they were half-hour shows. And plotting out a half-hour, well, let me put it this way. Even Conan Doyle was not able to successfully write a novelized version of a Sherlock Holmes mystery. There's something about a mystery where you want to get in, Mm -hmm. get, get to it, and finish it as quickly as possible. And I say that keeping in mind that Hound of the Baskervilles is one of the most successful novels ever written. However, I don't think it's the greatest Sherlock Holmes story. You know, there is something about a mystery that the the longer you prolong the solving of it, the less interesting it becomes. And so the 22-minute stories were harder to write. And then when you're getting all the layers and network notes, it gave them more to comment on, and that made it more difficult But you can see that I was always trying to, you know, when that musical number happened in Me and My Shadow Demon, and you know, when I was watching it uh, four weeks ago, it caught me totally by surprise. I could feel that probably my interest in the story had begun to flag, and I felt that I needed to do something to perk everything up. I was shocked at the quality of animation that they put into it. You know, the tap dancing number, I actually was kind of surprised. It was actually really well animated. Of course, the big thrill was having Vincent Price Yes. Doing voices. And it was a thrill to be at the recording sessions and see him reciting, you know, my lines. And there's a funny story. I wanted to meet Vincent Price and Cynthia had gone to the recording session. I don't know why I didn't go. I might have been busy doing something else. But she met him out in the parking lot and they were standing there and she had the PA system trying to find me. And Vincent Price very nicely waited until they found me. I kept Vincent Price waiting, but he stood with Cynthia out in the parking lot waiting for them to find me. And then they found me and I came rushing out and I got him to autograph the storyboard for uh, me and my shadow demon, which I still have to this day. And he was very nice. Couldn't have been sweeter. One of the uh, funny things about the entertainment business is it's always the bad guys who who end up being the nicest guys that you'd ever want to meet. You know, usually... The heroes in TV shows and movies can be complete jerks, but the bad guys, the evildoers, tend to be some of the sweetest people on the planet. And Vincent Price was certainly one of the sweetest people on the planet. He was an incredibly intelligent, erudite man, and I think that he was very easy to engage with. And the brief conversation that I had with him, he made me feel very special, and and I, of course, was, was thrilled to be chatting with Vincent Price. That's the great thing about cartoons is People didn't realize back in the 80s, you know, cartoons were not what people considered to be an important part of the industry back in the 80s. So if you were a young person and you were coming to Hollywood and you wanted to be in Hollywood, 85% of the young people coming to Hollywood had no interest in cartoons Mm -hmm. because it was not important. You know, they wanted to write a sitcom or they wanted to write a movie or something. But the great thing about cartoons back in those days was, strangely enough, you would end up meeting some of the biggest stars in Hollywood. You know, they would either be doing a voice or they would be working on an animated project of their own that they needed to have developed. And I met so many great people through animation, the Jim Henson's, the George Lucas's of the world, great actors that I met and worked with Martin Landau. I worked with Martin Landau just a few weeks before he won an Academy Award for uh, Ed Wood. For me, it was always a great place to meet some of the most important people in the industry. And then, of course, Tom Ruger went on to work with Steven Spielberg. 
That's right. So, <laughs> I always felt that it was sort of like our secret that we were in fact in a wonderful position. We cartoon people were in fact in a wonderful position to meet some of the top talent in the industry. The other thing about a lot of these people like Vincent Price is they took their work seriously, but they didn't take themselves seriously because he was famously quoted as that he'd worked with Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, John Carradine, and Scooby-Doo. Right. <laughs> you know, he wasn't like, oh, I'm slumming, I'm doing a Scooby-Doo. It's like, how delightful. That's the other thing, was that <laughs> when I was watching one of the cartoons that I had written, I had written this whole opening for him that was pure Vincent Price, you know. I was obviously relishing the fact that I knew that Vincent Price was going to be recording these words. So yeah. there was some spell that he was doing or... Oh, they were calling to let him know that his crystal ball had been cracked. Scooby and Shaggy and Daphne were calling and they said, uh, we got something to tell you and it's going to make you scream. And the line I had written was, in all of my years dealing with the occult and horror, you know, I've never screamed. And then they told him that they had cracked the crystal ball and he screamed. Now... <laughs> Clearly, I wrote that knowing that Vincent Price was going to record those words. And for me, that was kind of an in-joke and it was kind of a fun thing. Was that him screaming? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he loved it. He loved recording that show. He really loved doing Scooby-Doo. And one of my great treats was meeting his daughter, Victoria, and you know, introducing myself as someone who had written on the series. She said that he really enjoyed working on that show. Someone wrote a very lovely biography of Vincent Price, kind of a pictorial biography. And I met her as well. I, when I got her to autograph the book, I pointed out she had had a couple of images from uh, 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo in that book. I love that it was included because there was a time, as you mentioned, where cartoons were not always top of mind. And I would watch a talk show and I'd be waiting for the celebrity to mention when they did a voice in something and it would never come up. Yeah. And that, it's, it, it's so much for all ages, I guess, or maybe it's not embarrassing. I don't know why no, it's it cool now. It's cool now. So people yeah. want to talk about it first and foremost, and people are scrambling to get involved in animated shows. Now, if I go out for a job, I'm duking it out with hundreds of people who have graduated with college degrees in animation specifically. Yeah. Because yeah. there are so many kids now that want to do it, and there's so many colleges that have departments and whatnot. But back in the 80s, nobody really wanted to be in animation, and it was really kind of fun to be here. We had the entire field to ourselves. It was like that for voice actors. It wasn't a career necessarily that somebody sought out, maybe a few people, but a lot of them came out of radio. Yeah. And there were a handful of the major ones, the Mel Blanks and June Ferrays and Janet Waldos. And there is a stellar cast on like Smurfs. If you read the, the credits, it's yeah. Ray Walston. And, I worked and with them all. Robert yeah. Morse. Yeah. You know, Robert Morse was on Pawpaws, you know, yeah. but the career of voice acting has become super competitive too. Oh, well, now you've got all of these young kids who do anime voices. And so there are a horde of people that came in through that. You know, it was a very small group of people who did voices for Hanna-Barbera. Uh, you had Daz Butler, Don Messick, June Foray, John Stevenson. You had the Jetsons voices. You had the Flintstones voices, Gene Vanderpile, Henry Corden. It was a very small group of people. And then it started expanding when they started doing things like Smurfs. You got Alan Young and Paul Winchell. But these were all people I had grown up knowing. I had grown up knowing who they were. I was so excited to meet Paul Winchell, whom I thought was a ventriloquism genius. And I still do. Yeah. 
He was. Uh, and getting to work with him, he was doing Gargamel. That was just so exciting. And Alan Young, you know, I, I grew up with Mr. Ed. But then at some point, there started to be a whole new group of people. Now they're all legends. I worked with Bobby Bergen, who's now the voice of Porky Pig. Oh, he's so uh, great. Bob yeah. is a genius. And I did one of Bob's first shows. I was the showrunner for the animated Fraggle Rock for Jim Henson. On that show, I had Bob Bergen, Townsend Coleman, Rob Paulson, Barbara Goodson, who ended up being Rita Repulsa. They're now all the animation voiceover legends. Yeah. There is just a horde of new kids that have come into it. And I couldn't begin to tell you. I only know a few of them. Crispin Freeman is extraordinarily talented and he does wonderful voiceover. Good friend of mine, Karen Kaler, does voiceovers and is quite wonderful and brilliant. But I couldn't begin to tell you who's doing cartoon voices really now because the field is so huge. Mm -hmm. uh, and the competition, I think, for them is ridiculous now. Is your new series using an L.A. cast or a New York cast or a Canadian cast? <laughs> uh, uh, well, we're using mostly L.A. You know, we have Al Roker, of course, is in it. So he's in New York. We record him usually in New York. And uh, Holly Robinson-Pete is uh, oh. one of our voices. She's Al's wife. And then kids, they're extraordinarily talented. For many of them, it's their first role in the industry. And, uh, you know, they'll probably go on and do great things long after I'm gone. Holly Robinson, there's a PBS tie-in right there because her father was Matt Robinson, who was the original Gordon on Sesame Street. That's right. Yeah. And she's doing a wonderful job on our show. It's an interesting time in animation in general because there are so many voices now in it. And there are so many technologies that you can't even lump it all under one category of animation anymore. Well, but it also makes people happy. And you've certainly done that, Mr. Well, John Semper Jr., as I wrap up <laughs> another fine session. <laughs> thank you. This has been fun. Look, look at us. We're just a couple of guys talking cartoons now. And that's, but that's... Isn't that fun? I would be sitting at Disney meetings and we'd be talking about Goofy and then I'd stop it and say, do you realize what we're doing? We're adults having a conversation about Goofy. I'm yeah. loving this. It's about Goofy. <laughs> that's, that's all that matters. That's really all that matters. Uh, I'm, it amazes me that I've done this my entire adult life, that I've gotten away with doing this my entire adult life. I can't say it's always been fun, but it is kind of amazing to think that I made a career out of this and that I get to now be interviewed by lovely gentlemen like yourself, lovely, knowledgeable gentlemen like you. So thank oh, you. Nice. That's nice. And thank you for joining us again. And thanks to all of you for listening to another session at the Fantastic World. And please tune in again for our next episode. We hope that you'll join us and enjoy. Bye-bye now. We hope you enjoyed the fantastic world of Hannah and Barbara with Greg Airborne. Please join us again, and many thanks for listening. <laughs>